Welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Monday, July 8th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Harris releases her Q2 numbers, Bullock releases his Q2 numbers, Williamson encourages her donors to help out Gravel, CNN will televise the lineup draw for the July debates, Biden apologizes for his remarks about segregationists, the candidates shout out the big USWNT win and call for equal pay, Eric Swalwell makes a big announcement, Julian Castro makes a big announcement, and we have rumors of yet another Democratic primary candidate. That's a lot. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Senator Kamala Harris released her Q2 fundraising numbers on Friday, and they were just about even with her Q1 numbers. Harris's campaign said she brought in about $12 million in Q2, which puts her at less than half the amount of the current fundraising leader, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. What's potentially worse is that Harris actually brought in a total of over $13 million in Q1, though that number did include some funding transfers from previous campaigns. So the best way to read this fundraising performance is flat quarter to quarter. Harris's campaign pointed out that a lot of her Q2 money came right at the end of the quarter. Reading from a New York Times article by Reed Epstein and Thomas Kaplan, quote, Harris collected more than $2 million in online donations in the first 24 hours after the start of the Democratic debate on June 27th, as well as an additional $1.2 million online last weekend, her team said, end quote. While that does show momentum in the last days of the quarter, the campaign cannot be happy that it just barely pulled out a flat number in the last few days of the 91-day fundraising period. If Harris had not had such a breakout moment in that debate, it's likely her overall Q2 fundraising would have declined from Q1 to Q2. Reading again from the Times, quote, The Harris campaign said Friday that she received donations from more than 279,000 people during the second quarter and raised more than $7 million of her total online. The campaign said its average donation was $39, lower than the $49 average reported by the Biden campaign, but higher than the $18 average cited by the Sanders team. End quote. So, to sum up, Harris's numbers currently put her in fourth place at the moment for Q2 behind Buttigieg, Biden, and Sanders. There are still a few big question marks out there, mainly what did Senator Elizabeth Warren raise, but I'm guessing we're going to know that soon. And Montana Governor Steve Bullock released his Q2 numbers on Friday as well. He brought in more than $2 million despite having only entered the race on May 4th. That's even later than Biden, so this number is pretty good in the context of the lower tier candidates. He did not provide any more info, so this segment is now over. On Sunday, Marianne Williamson sent a campaign email urging her supporters to donate to Mike Gravel. Gravel, a retired senator from Alaska, had something in the neighborhood of 55,000 donors prior to that email, meaning he needs just 10,000 more to qualify for the July debate under the grassroots fundraising method. And he needs those donors very soon as the window for submitting qualifying info to the DNC closes in just days. This is the first time I've heard of a candidate in this cycle asking her own donors to give money to a rival candidate, and I think that's awesome. I'm going to read a portion of the email here. Quote, During his time in the Senate, he garnered wide respect for his unabashed opposition to the Vietnam War and for reading the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record, risking expulsion from the Senate. 
Democracy is, by definition, for the people and by the people. Democracy thrives when brave men like Mike Gravel risk their careers to do what's just and right. That's why diverse and provocative voices like Gravel's are so important to move the debates and conversation about our nation's peace and prosperity forward. End quote. And Williamson wrapped up the email by asking her donors to give a dollar to Gravel's campaign. Remember, the amount of the donation does not matter for the DNC's debate counting. They just want to see an overall 65,000 donors with at least 200 people in each of 20 states. And $1 is the minimum donation. I reached out to the Gravel campaign asking for comment, and the campaign said that while it's too early to project the full effect of Williamson's email, they received 2,000 additional donations in the first 10 hours after the email and expected thousands more within the next 48 hours as a direct result of that email. They further clarified that those Williamson email-related donors are in addition to thousands more they have recently received. While I did not get an explicit statement on whether Gravel has crossed the 65,000 donor threshold, that campaign is looking very close. This morning, CNN announced that it will actually televise the thing where they pick which candidates go on which nights of the July debates. Reminder, this month's debates are July 30th and 31st, which are a Tuesday and Wednesday. So you may recall for the June debates, the issue of which candidates got to go on which night was determined by a lottery held at 30 Rock, which was open only to the campaigns and the DNC itself. This time will be a little bit different and a little more reality TV style. On CNN, Kate Sullivan wrote, quote, The draw to determine the lineup for each night will air live on July 18th in the 8 p.m. Eastern Time Hour on CNN, said the network spokesperson, who noted additional details of the draw will be released in the coming days. End quote. Now look, I have a suggestion for you, CNN. You put the candidates' names on bingo balls. You put the bingo balls in a hopper, then you crank the hopper, you crank the hopper, you crank the hopper, and you pull out each candidate, and you put it up there bingo style. People love bingo. People love the lottery. This is going to be great TV. So CNN, you can have that one for me for free. I hope you're listening. The Primary Ride Home is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of classes covering all kinds of skills. We're talking everything from business to gardening to creative writing, you name it. So whether you've got a passion project, you just need some knowledge to get through, or you're challenging yourself to move outside your comfort zone by learning a new skill, Skillshare has classes for you. So listen up. Before I was a podcast host, I was a writer and mostly a writer of nonfiction. On Skillshare, I came across a class called Creative Nonfiction, Write Truth with Style. Now, the thing about this class is that it's taught by Susan Orlean, who is one of my writing heroes. She wrote The Orchid Thief and a ton of other great stuff. In this class, Susan Orlean takes you, yes you, and teaches you how to report, write, and edit a story. You literally cannot get this anywhere else. She is awesome. It is awesome and she can teach you to write awesomely. So, join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for you. Get two free months. That is correct. Skillshare is offering Primary Ride Home listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com PRH. Again, that is Skillshare.com PRH to start your two free months today. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. In a speech in South Carolina on Saturday, Joe Biden commented on his long record of public service and apologized for his recent remarks about working with Senators James O. Eastland and Herman Talmadge. Most of the media coverage I've seen on this focuses exclusively on the apology, but I want to put that in context because it comes from a much longer speech. So we're going to listen to two clips. This first one comes from about four minutes in. Listen in. I made the decision, like many of you have, to get off the sidelines, to get involved, to lead. At a distance, those decisions to get involved, to lead, seem simple, so simple to accomplish. You make no compromises. You work only with those with whom you agree. And you live in the world you want. But the reality, as you all know, is quite different. To get things done, you have to work with people who were elected long before you. And it requires some people who you have to engage with who don't see the world the way you see it. Some may be downright repugnant to everything you stand for. Sometimes it gets messy. But to adjust, you have to. And slowly but surely, you begin to make progress. To find common ground without yielding on principle. Accepting some compromise on things you don't support in order to get things that are really important done for your people. You work with people who may offend you. In my case, every fiber in my being is offended when I ran. I'm serious. To get things done for the greater good. You work in the world you inherit. You work in the world you've been given. Because otherwise, nothing gets done. And next up is the clip where he does issue the apology. Now, I also want to point out that most media are covering just the first few sentences of this, and they don't continue to the next part, which I think is vital to understanding Biden's argument. Biden is laying out a framework here to defend his position in this field. He's insulating himself here against future attacks about his record. At the same time, he's making a logical comment on the fact that during his career, this country has changed, and so has he, and so have many of his positions. This may benefit him if the audience reaction is any guide. So, listen in. Now, was I wrong a few weeks ago to somehow give the impression to people that I was praising those men who I successfully opposed time and again? Well, yes, I was. I regret it. And I'm sorry for any of the pain or misconception they may have caused anybody. But should that misstep define 50 years of my record for fighting for civil rights, racial justice in this country? I hope not. I don't think so. That just isn't an honest assessment of my record. And I'm going to let my record and my character stand for itself and not be distorted or smeared. 
You know, America in 2019 is a very, very different place than the 1970s. And that's a good thing. I've witnessed an incredible, incredible amount of change in this nation. And I've worked to make that change happen. And yes, I've changed also. I'm not the same person under the Senate at age 29. I don't pretend to have gotten everything right. I don't pretend that none of my positions have changed. I've grown. And I think it's good to be able to grow, to progress. Flawed and imperfect like everyone else, I've made the best decisions I could at the moment those decisions had to be made. As I look back over my career, I'm reminded of that verse from the first Corinthians. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully. We never know enough. We never know enough. On Sunday, the U.S. women's national soccer team won its second straight World Cup and its fourth overall, defeating the Netherlands 2-0 and setting social media on fire. While this is not a sports podcast, I did notice a distinct political trend. Every single Democratic primary candidate tweeted in support of the team, and many of them did so in the context of the team's campaign for equal pay with men who play the same sport. In an article for CNN, Michelle Liu wrote, quote, In March, 28 members of the USWNT sued the U.S. Soccer Federation for allegedly discriminating by paying the women less than members of the men's national team for substantially equal work and by denying them at least equal playing, training, and travel conditions, equal promotion of their games, equal support and development for their games, and other terms and conditions of employment equal to the MNT. The Soccer Federation and the plaintiffs last month tentatively agreed to mediation, which is expected to begin now that the World Cup is over. During the celebration Sunday, the crowd at the soccer stadium in Lyon chanted, Equal pay, in support of the women's efforts. End quote. And one more bit from that article, quote, The prize for the 2018 Men's World Cup stood at $400 million, while female players will receive $30 million this year. End quote. Senator Amy Klobuchar retweeted that article and simply added the hashtag #PayTheseWomen. Julian Castro wrote, quote, "Congratulations to USWNT on a huge victory and a fourth championship. They've been leaders on and off the field and are poised for another huge victory for equal pay. One nation, one team, American flag emoji." End quote. Senator Elizabeth Warren wrote, quote, They bring home the ratings, the revenue, and the wins. But even if they didn't, the players of the USWNT deserve equal pay. End quote. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand tweeted a video showing the repeated chance of equal pay at the game and wrote, quote, The USWNT fought hard and brought home yet another World Cup title, making history as back-to-back champions. This team makes our country proud. They shouldn't have to fight just to be paid what they deserve. End quote. And on Twitter, listener Leo wrote, quote, The only content I want from the primary ride home this week is a list of what every candidate said about the USWNT World Cup win. Please, Chris Higgins, this is too difficult to compile on my own, and honestly, it is all that matters right now. 
End quote. Well, Leo, check the show notes. I have links to all the great tweets. All 25 Democratic primary candidates on my list tweeted in support of the USWNT at least once and often several times. So go check those show notes and find out how much every candidate loves women's soccer. File this next story under breaking news that hasn't quite broken yet. In a tweet just a few hours ago, Politics One reported that Congressman Eric Swalwell, quote, has canceled his New Hampshire campaign swing, flew home to California, and will be making an announcement this afternoon related to his presidential campaign. Most believe he is withdrawing from the race and possibly announcing he will instead seek re-election. End quote. Now, I checked Swalwell's Twitter account just minutes before heading into the recording booth. He had not confirmed or denied any of this. Instead, just moments ago, he tweeted in support of South Carolina congressional candidate Kim Nelson. So it's unclear whether that means Swalwell is running for that House seat or not, but it sure looks like he's about to drop out of the presidential primary. Whatever he's announcing won't come until 1 p.m. Pacific time, which is after this podcast will be released, but we will follow up on whatever happens tomorrow. And file this one under news that just broke right before I hit the print button. Julian Castro announced that his campaign has reached 130,000 donors. This means he has qualified for the fundraising part of the September debates, though he still has some polling work to do. Fox News reporter Pat Ward broke the news and followed up with news that Senator Cory Booker is at right around 115,000 donors, so Booker may be next. And last up today, we have rumors that Tom Steyer, a wealthy environmentalist and former hedge fund manager, is considering a primary run. According to a Politico story, Steyer has told various people close to him that he is indeed going to run. This comes after publicly declining to run back in January. While we don't have an official announcement, this certainly does sound credible. So I guess stay tuned for more on Steyer if he indeed announces a run. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter at Chris Higgins. Yeah, wow. Uh, a show with nine stories. I do think that's a record, and I hope you enjoyed the fast pace as much as I did. In Yarden news, tomorrow we have some arborists coming over to climb the giant dug firs and take out some nasty invasive vines and stuff. So there is a chance of chainsaw and chipper noises in the background tomorrow. I'll see if I can get that chainsaw remover plug-in set up and dialed in real good. But you know how it goes. Computers are not 100% perfect at handling power tools yet. It's like a 2029 type of thing. So we'll see what we can do. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow. Tomorrow.